0: All righty. Good morning. good morning. Great to see some of y'all back. I know it was spring break, so good to have everyone here this morning. Um, we have some tech issues, so you're gonna all have to look at this screen up here. So yes, you don't mind. Thank you. All righty. We'll turn with me to John 17, if you would. We are continuing to work through Christ's closing prayer in John 17. And uh, this week we come to a, a new section in this prayer. If you've not been with us, uh, we've we've seen how this prayer sort of unfolds in, in a few sections. Christ prays for himself, and then he prays for his people. And he first prays for his current disciples, the apostles, in verses six through nineteen. And then, as you, we're going to see this morning, he expands it to to all of his disciples. Um, So where we've been the past couple weeks, in verses 6 to 19, Christ prays for his current disciples, the, the apostles. As he is going to die on the cross, be resurrected, return to heaven, it's going to mean his glory, but it's also going to mean that his people are left in the world, a world of which they do not now belong, but to which they're being sent back into as his representatives, And that's the context for the request that Christ makes in this this prayer. Because that's the case, the world's hate and hostility will shift from Christ onto his people. And that will mean suffering and persecution. It will mean the temptation to abandon the faith, it will mean the temptation to abandon the mission. It will mean the temptation to withdraw from this world. And it will also mean the temptation to conform to this world, to compromise with the world rather than remaining distinct from it. And so that's why Christ prays what he does. He he makes two requests for them. He prays that the Father would keep them and that the Father would sanctify them. In other words, Christ is, by his prayer, securing all that his people will need to be faithful in this world and to be brought all the way to glory. And he lets us listen in on his prayer because he wants us to be encouraged by what he is securing for us in his prayers. And so this closing prayer ends his farewell discourse on a note of victory, not gloom. Christ's departure will mean the suffering of his witnesses in this world, but his prayer is here to declare that he has accomplished all of his father's work. He secured the redemption of his people and he sent his people into the world on a mission that cannot fail. And that brings us to our passage this morning. While well, strictly speaking, All that we saw the past couple weeks has been specifically for his apostles, his current disciples. Jesus now shifts in his prayer to include all of his disciples, including you and me, because the things that he prayed for applies just as much to us as it did to them. But he also shifts here to praying for his future disciples in order to highlight the certain success of the mission. And to give us a portrait for how that mission is to go forward in the world. And so this morning we're going to be looking at John 17 verses 20 to 23. In which Christ prays for the unity, witness, and expanding circle of all his disciples. So let's read it before we get going. Verse 20. That they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. So as you can see, it's only four verses, but they are packed, and we will just scratch the surface this morning. I've broken this passage down into two parts, because as you can see from this chart, it, it essentially unfolds the same way two times. Uh, The second section expands or amplifies what Christ prays the first time. And so we're going to look at these sections one one at a time. So in verses 20 through 21, Christ prays for the unity of his people and the salvation of the world. And it begins in verse 20 with Jesus explaining the target of his prayer, those who will believe. So look at verse 20 again. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Christ here shifts from praying specifically for his apostles to including all of his disciples. And he's going to pray some incredible things in this prayer, but the way he begins here is is very significant. And I want to make a couple of points. Look what he says. I am asking for those who will believe in me through their word. I think we can take two things from that. The first is the certain success of this mission. Look what he says. I pray for those who will believe. People will believe though disciples are being sent into a rebellious, hostile world, nevertheless, Christ declares that some from the world will believe. You remember what Christ said back in John 10, verse 16? I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Certainty. That's sovereignty speaking. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. That is the certain success of this mission that Christ has sent his people on. He will gather each and every one of his sheep. But he's ordained to do it through the means of his people's witness. And that brings us to the next thing I think we can see from what he says here the essential means of faithful witness. He says, for those who will believe in me through their word. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing from the word of Christ. Their word here is nothing less than the word that Christ gave to them. Which is nothing less than the word that the Father gave to Christ. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word, Jesus says. It's the sum total of the revelation of God that's revealed finally in Christ and it's been recorded and transmitted to us by the apostles in the scripture. And the speaking of that word is the essential means whereby people will believe. This verse is here to tell us that our witness in word Passing on the words of the apostles, speaking the gospel is absolutely essential. Where there is no communication of truth in words, there is no witness. And where there is no witness, there is no hope for the world. So this is meant to be an encouragement for Christ's people. Faithful witness is necessary. Oh, he's sovereign. He will gather them but it will be through the means of faithful witness. But that brings us now to the aim of his prayer. That was the target, and here's the aim of his prayer, is the unity of his disciples. Look at what he asks for them. That they may all be one. So Christ is now praying for all his people, including those who have not yet believed but who will believe, and he specifically prays that they might be one, they might be unified. That's one of Christ's main concerns for his people hours before he leaves. Isn't that interesting? Is that what you would have prayed? Look back up at verse 11. He already prayed it once. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given to me. True faith in Christ so that they may be one. Same thing. According to verse 11, that unity of Christ's people is created by a mutual submission to the truth of Christ. It's not a unity which is achieved by settling for the lowest common theological denominator. That's not the kind of unity he's praying. It's unity in the name the Father has revealed in Christ. It's a unity created by a shared faith in the truth of God's word in the gospel of Christ. So there's a sense in which we do not try to become unified. We are already unified. And now because we are unified by having the same gospel focus and faith, we are to pursue the outworking of unity towards one another. And that's what Jesus is praying for his people here. In other words, if you're a believer, if you're a true disciple, you are already in unity with other disciples. Because of our faith in the gospel, we have a new relationship with God and therefore a new relationship with one another. And now we're called to live out that unity, experientially, practically, toward one another and. And so Jesus will go on to explain what that looks like. What does that unity actually look like? And where does it come from? And why is it so important? And so he first tells us the model for his disciples' unity is the unity of the Father and the Son. Look what he says. That they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Now what does that mean? Well, we've encountered this language of the mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son and the Son in the Father throughout the Gospel of of John. It refers primarily to this relationship of intimacy experienced between the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son are eternally distinct from one another. They are not the same, equally God, but they're not the same. And yet they are eternally unified in love, in purpose, and in action. The son was in the father in that he was always in complete dependence on the father, submission to the father, delight in the father and all the father's purposes. And the father was always in the son in that he was in complete delight in his son, accomplishing all of his work through the son, seeking to honor his son, And Jesus prays that we, his disciples, would be unified like that. You see? That our unity with one another because of the gospel would play itself out in a kind of relational intimacy. Closeness. Devotion. Affection. Submission. With and to one another. Which is reflective of nothing less than the Trinity itself. C.A. Carson writes, similarly, the believers, still distinct, are to be one in purpose, in love, in action, undertaken with and for one another, in joint submission to the revelation received. That's the picture. And so the bar of our unity, the standard, the goal, could not be set any higher. It is God Himself. But how is that kind of unity even possible? Where does it come from? Well, we said above that, to use Carson's words, it comes from joint submission to the revelation received. We, 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 we submit to the gospel. But Jesus here gives us something else. He gives us the basis of his disciples' unity is their union with God. Look what else he says. He says, so that they may also be in us. That they may be in us. The unity of disciples, which reflects the very unity of the Godhead, is rooted in the fact that we as disciples are in a profound unity with God himself, the Father and the Son. Now what does that mean? How are we in unity with the Father and the Son? I think Jesus gave us the par- paradigm for this back in John 15. The vine and the branches. Do you remember that? We're in the Father and in the Son in that we're in a relationship of dependency on him for life and fruitfulness. We've been brought into a relationship with God in which we're continually drawing from all that he is for us in Christ. All of his love. Everything Christ accomplished for us depending on him. Being filled with his word. Being dependent on him in prayer benefiting from the abundance of his love for us in Christ. And from that relationship, John 15 told us, flows our love for one another. In other words, the kind of unity that is to be experienced in the church, one of mutual love and affection and commitment, flows from and is rooted in the intimate relationship we possess with God himself. Which means that as that relationship is cultivated, as it's matured individually and corporately as a body, John 15 showed us what that looks like, so also will our unity together. Which also means that the unity experienced by believers is a kind that is completely foreign and alien in this world. It is otherworldly. Which leads to the next point. The purpose of disciples' unity is the faith and salvation of the world. So look at verse twenty-one: that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus' request for his people's unity is not an ends in itself. Oh, it's significant. It's important. But the church must never forget its unity is not the end goal. Disciples must be aware that their unity doesn't mean becoming ingrown. There's an outward directedness to it. Just as the unity between the Father and the Son resulted in him going out to the world, for the salvation of the world, so also, he says, the unity of believers in some way also results in witness going out to the world. Jesus says, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The implication being that this unity must be observable, right? They have to be able to see it. It must be a unity which is practically experienced among God's people, reflecting the very unity of the Father and the Son. And it must be a unity which is not hiding from the world, a mutual devotion to one another which the world has access to see. And Jesus says that that will be the means alongside of bearing witness with his word. You see, it's both, whereby people in the world will will believe. So let me give you a few implications from this for our lives. Number one, the effectiveness of our witness to the world will go no further than our loving commitment to one another in the church. One of the primary ways you bear witness to the world is not by neglecting the church in the name of serving the world or giving your primary attention to unbelievers. But it is by your devotion to the church, to other disciples, your self-sacrificing love for one another. It is as the very love and oneness of God is put on display in our midst that the gospel stands forth as a witness to the world. So don't think that devotion to the church, building up the church, pouring your lives out for others in the body is somehow at odds with or a distraction from our witness to the world. It's a means to it. It's essential. The world is so full of counterfeit attempts for this kind of unity, isn't it? The problem is that this unity cannot be achieved by man, by a social agenda, by politics, by social reconstruction. You can't do it. It can only be achieved through the gospel and the transforming love of God, experienced by believers and channeled out to one another. But if the church fails to be that, then it has become indistinguishable from the world. We failed to be the witness. That we ought to be. But that being said, we must never allow our unity to become ingrownness. So you just see the balance that's in this passage. Instead, our witness to the world requires that we practically seek to engage the world with the truth of the gospel. We need to be around unbelievers. We need to be around the world. By giving clear explanations of the gospel and showing the world our love for one another. And so that means that skipping church to go do some social project or hang out with unbelievers in the attempt to win them to Christ actually undermines the very gospel you seek to win them with. And you're very witness to them. It's why it was such an error for us to be told during the pandemic that if we really wanted to be good witnesses to the world, we should just forget about gathering together. Whereas it is actually our gathering together, which demonstrates before a watching world, our very love for one another, willingness to take risks in order to be with one another. It's central to our witness. And of course, the world will hate us for it. We've already been told that, but some, because of our witness, will believe. So that's the first half of Christ's requests here. Let's move on quickly to the to the second half now. He amplifies what he's just prayed, and um, he goes into some deep waters here, his absolutely glorious. He prays now for the complete unity of Christ's people in the display of Trinitarian love to the world in verses 22 to 23. Jesus first explains that the unity of disciples is rooted in the glory that Christ has given to them. Look at verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. This is now the sixth thing, if you've been with us in chapter 17, it's the sixth thing that Christ says the Father gave to him. The Father gave him authority, gave him a people, gave him works, gave him words, gave him his name, and now gave him glory. And it's also the fourth thing in this chapter that the Son gives to believers. He gives them eternal life, the Father's word, the Father's name, and now glory. So let's look at this gift of glory really quickly. What is this? What does he mean? What is this glory the Father has given to Christ, first of all? He says, the glory you have given me. God's glory throughout John refers to the visible display of God's character. It is God's visible splendor. And throughout John, we've learned that that is displayed in Christ. That's why God sent Christ to reveal that. And where is that maximally revealed? We've said it over and over again. At the cross, right? So I think the glory the Father gave to Christ is clearly the glory of Christ's humility and condescension. Beginning with the incarnation, culminating in his crucifixion and resurrection. In other words, Christ has come to be the display of God's glory. And that glory consists not of worldly power and pomp, but of humility, self-sacrifice, the display of the unfathomable reaches of redeeming love. That's the glory of God that he gave to Christ. And Jesus says that that glory he has given to you and to me. In other words, he's revealed it to us. He has given his people, the display of his glory. As a believer, you have seen the splendor of God, which consists in the condescending of the heights of heaven to the depths of hell and shame for you. And if that were not enough, we're going to see next week, Christ prays that you will see the fullness of that glory in, in heaven. But look at the result of this. It is the unity of disciples. Why did he... Give this glory. He says, so that they may be one, even as we are one. There it is again. In other words, I think Jesus means two things. I think he's saying, the ultimate foundation of the unity of God's people consists in their common enjoyment of and faith in the glory of God revealed in the face of Christ. It's the gospel. It's the gospel which is and which always must be the main thing that unifies the people of God. In other words, when we allow other things, preferences, opinions, conscience matters, personal offenses, minor doctrines, to become the line of division and unity, we are not far from idolatry. We have displaced the glory of Christ from its rightful place at the center. And we've placed other things of infinitely less value in its place. The unity of the church is to be centered around and nourished by the truths of who Christ is and what he has accomplished. That's why we do what we do on Sunday morning. Put his word on center display, the gospel on center display. And when it is, it will have a profound influence and our unity. The next thing, say really quickly, I think he also means, I, I've given them the glory you've given me so that they may be one. I think he's talking about the practical outworking of the unity of God's people, which consists in their participation in the glory. We are to participate in this glory, not just behold it, but participate in it. How? By following Christ on the Calvary road by dying to self for one another. That will be the pathway to our oneness. And so just like in verse 21, so also here, disciples' oneness reflects the the triune God Jesus prays so that they might be one just as we are one. And that brings us now to verse 23, in which Jesus says that the unity of, of disciples is to be brought to completion. Look at verse 23. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may believe that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus again points us to the relationship that we as disciples enjoy with God. He points us to the root of our unity. So back in verse 21, the focus was on, on our being in the Father and in the Son. Here the focus is on the Father and the Son being in us. You see that? When he says, I in them and you in me. Christ indwells his people by his spirit and the Father indwells Christ. In other words, the fullness of the Godhead, the Trinity indwells you personally and the church Corporately, the new covenant people of God. So what Christ declared to us back in chapter 14, we are experiencing the restoration of God's dwelling place among us. It's a reality that's true for each one of us, and now we must live like it. So what does it look like to live like that? God is with us, in us. Well, he tells us, it's the perfection of Unity. He says that they might become perfectly one. The purpose, the result of the indwelling presence of God with us is that we are to pursue perfect unity. He says that the unity as people experience by virtue of their relationship with him around a common faith in the gospel, that unity must grow, mature, and be perfected. So we are already unified and we're to become completely unified in experience. This class has been so precious. We have grown in unity with one another. You can feel it. You can taste it. But Jesus is saying here, it's not complete. Keep going for it. Pressing on to it. I pray for their complete, perfect unity until it becomes the perfect reflection Of the Trinity itself. That's Christ's will for us in this age. It's the high standard of unity that he expects from his people. We're never to be content. Always pressing towards this. So that's the goal. But why? Why now? Same reason we saw in verse 21. Christ prays for the union of his people will be a compelling witness to the world. Look at how it ends, verse 23. So that the world might know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So do you see the unbreakable chain in this passage here? This model for how the word goes forth? The apostles are sent into the word with Christ's word, the world with Christ's word. People from the world believe through their word and are made one. The world believes through the witness of these future disciples. These believers are gathered into the unity of the people of God. And then more people believe in response to this growing community. That's four generations of believers in these verses. And that's the point. That's how this circle of Christ's disciples expands and grows. That's the model for our church's mission and how we are to behave while Christ is a way. But how does it happen? It's through the witness of disciples, through their words, and through their unity. People from the world will come to know and believe the true identity of Christ, true faith. And the world will come to know and be caught up in the astonishing love the Father has for believers. He finishes by saying this, that they will know that you have loved them, disciples, even as you've loved me. The Father loves you just as He loves His Son. That is breathtaking, my friends. He loves you, believer, in a way analogous to how He loves His Son because you are in His Son. We, as believers, have been caught up into the very life and love of the triune God. It's the very spring of our unity. That's what's to be put on display before the watching world. And when it is, people from the world will be brought to faith. They will come now and partake of this same love and join us in our witness to the world. So that is the model that Christ is giving to us. What he expects from us, his people. And it's possible he's praying for us. He's securing these things for us and it's our duty now to pursue it. Any questions, comments before I pray? Conclude, Elliot. Yes. There you go. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yep. Very quickly. I was just thinking, like uh, you mentioned, you know, there's no other replication for this. Any other type of unity in a club or an activity waxes and wings with either your ability to do the activity. Hmm. Like if you're in an activity club and you get injured. Permanently, and you can't do it anymore. You're out. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and um, this is a lasting community. Mm-hmm. It's not like that in that way. It's not mm-hmm. temporary. It's good. Um, so it just struck mm-hmm. me as you were saying that, how mm-hmm. precious that is. Amen. Praise the Lord. good. Thoughts, questions, comments? Kelly? I know this is telling me how God seems to me that message I need to hear because that seems to be very appropriate for what I'm experiencing right now. And it never ceases to ask me how when I go to church, it's like God has the Hmm. right message for whatever it is I'm struggling with. It's like reading my mind and sending a message to the pastor. Amen. It's the power of the Spirit and of the Word. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All right, let me pray. Father, we thank you for Christ, O oh Lord, that He would be greater in our eyes. We behold His glory more, and by beholding it, we would be changed into it. As we reflect that same self sacrificing love and devotion to one another, Father, that we would be Your faithful witnesses in the world, that through us, bold proclamation of truth and loving devotion to one another. Lord, that you would accomplish your work in the world and gather your sheep to your people. We pray for your blessing on us and on the service to come. We love you and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.